Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace, Besides all these, taking the shield of faith, with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that utterance may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This morning we begin a four-week series on evangelism, the biblical perspective. My decision to focus attention on evangelism is because of a deepening desire in my own heart to see through the ministry of this church more people converted from unbelief to belief and folded into the fellowship of the church. Virtually every earnest Christian is grieved by his weakness in this area. Do you know that? you think you're the only one? I am bold to say There is no zealous Christian in this room who feels content with his effectiveness in personal evangelism. We feel guilty, perhaps, because of timidity. We feel regret because of missed opportunities that we can remember. We feel phony Because we say with our mouth that we love people and then don't act like we love them. And we feel fear when the pastor announces a series on evangelism. Lest something be crammed down our throats that we don't want. One of the most freeing things that we can do right here at the outset, I think, is to get that out on the table and admit it. To notice that in different degrees, that's the universal experience of every zealous Christian. Let me illustrate. James Usher was an evangelical preacher in the Church of England in the early 1600s. A Puritan who stayed with the church. Horatius Bonar tells a story about how incredibly hardworking James Usher was and that for 55 unbroken years, 
he labored in his pastorate and in his church and preached. And he says that when his final illness struck, the day that it hit, that brought him to his grave, he got up from his writing, which was a very significant part of his ministry, and he went to visit an old woman who was sick and spoke to her of heaven as though it were just around the corner, which it was. And then a few days later, he was on his deathbed, and Bonar records for us his last words at 1 o'clock p.m., March 21st, 1656. And they were these words. But Lord, in special, forgive me my sins of omission. Omission. So here's a man who, by everyone else, was regarded as hard-working, zealous, consistent, bold, and effective in ministry for 55 years. And as he dies, his heart is heavy and oppressed with his neglect. Things left undone. And when I read things like that, and when I look into my own heart, and when I talk to some of you, I conclude everybody bears the burden of weakness and neglect and failure in the area of personal evangelism. And so we retreat We focus our attention on other things. We recoil in self-defense from sermons on evangelism. If it helps any, I do too. These messages aren't easy for me to prepare and give. And I don't come to you, therefore, with a rod. I come with a longing for myself and a dream for this church. Let me tell you about the longing and then the dream. The longing is simple. I hope it's shared by many of you for me and for you. A longing to be changed, to be different. So that I'm more fruitful in God's hands. And a removal of anything that might hinder The saving work of God flowing through me and through you. A new touch of power in my preaching and in my personal dealing with people. And a fresh guidance so that I can know for sure that I am using my pastoral time to the maximum for the glory of Christ, so that I'm not spinning my wheels in any area of ministry or devoting too much time to one thing and neglecting another thing. That's my longing. My dream is simply to have a church that is free from the paralyzing effects of guilt in this area. Somehow to break out 
into freedom and leave behind the shell of remorse and failure and guilt. I'd love to see us all, every individual in this room and all the other three services, develop a a natural outlet for love and underline the word natural. Surely, wouldn't you agree, God intends there to be for every person in this room a natural, tailor-made outlet for love to flow from your heart to unbelieving people who are going to go to hell and suffer forever without the gospel. A natural outlet. And another thing I dream about is bridges being built, many of them, from this church into pockets of unbelief. All kinds of pockets of unbelief in this city. You have a pocket you know about. There are pockets in this neighborhood 60 feet away. We, we all live in pockets where there needs to be a casting of a bridge in there. And I dream about us all becoming so deeply sensible of the reality of Christ and so moved by His fellowship and the preciousness of His His love and His power and His wisdom that it is so natural to commend Him and His goodness and His grace and His power and His glory that we don't stumble over that opportunity, but lean into it. That's the spiritual work of the Spirit that we need so deeply in our hearts. And then finally, as the dream takes that shape, that the power of Christ would just come and make us unusually effective in rescuing sinners from destruction. So, I don't come with a rod, I come with a longing and a dream. And a happy dream, I think, of one day being healthy and happy and free and authentic and loving and powerful and evangelistic and outreaching and soul converting as a church. Now, if you share that longing for your pastor and for yourself and you share that dream, I hope that for the next four weeks, the Lord will move you to devote some special time to prayer. Because all I know to say in this regard is that God promises to come and bless us when we seek Him with all our heart. Jeremiah 29. I mean, what else can you say? I can't make it happen. You can't make it happen. Only God can make it happen. But we can pray. And so I ask you to, earnestly, and God will come. Now this morning, I want to begin with you in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, and unfold for you what to me has been a very exciting discovery about the meaning of this verse. Verse 15 of Ephesians 6 says, Having shod your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. 
having shod your feet, some of your versions say with equipment or with preparation. I think readiness is the best translation. We'll come back to talk about readiness in just a minute. But the first thing I want to focus on in this verse with you is the phrase, gospel of peace. Evangelism is about the gospel. It's about telling the gospel and imparting the gospel and uh, undergirding and verifying the gospel and just letting the gospel be known to people. Now, here you have the term gospel of peace, and we need to ponder this for just a minute because it's very precious. The gospel that you and I have as believers, I trust, is the good news for a lost dad or sister or neighbor or child or colleague. The good news, and here's the way I would sum up the essence of the gospel, that God our Maker has purchased peace with us through the death of His Son and that He offers that peace to sinners who believe in Jesus. Our Maker, who is holy, has purchased peace for us with Him by the death of His Son, and now He offers that peace in the Gospel to sinners like you and me who will believe in Jesus. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 13. And watch Paul unfold for us the gospel of peace. You know, some people, while you're turning there, say that it's strange that the reference to the gospel of peace should be listed in a, a, a list of arms or armor for war. We are in a conflict with Satan, and here's our armor, and then he mentions the gospel of peace. Now, if you just think about that for a few minutes, it's not that strange, is it? Because uh, what's the goal of our fighting in this world? What's the goal of spiritual warfare? It isn't to kill people. It's to rescue people and help them make peace with God. What we're against is the chains that hold them. The powers that enslave people. That's what we're fighting against. Those forces, those sins, those spiritual powers in the heavenly places that blind people. The God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what we hate and target with the gospel. Insofar as it's a deadly weapon. And our whole goal is to commend peace to people. It's like uh, uh, amnesty. If there's been treason, which there has been in every human heart, against the commander or ruler of the kingdom, the only hope is amnesty. And he writes it with the blood of his son. And then he gets his emissaries and gives them an official copy of it. There it is. And he says, now go and offer complete amnesty 
to every rebel subject in my kingdom and tell them I've bought it with my son's blood and they don't have to buy it. They can't buy it. So that's, that's what's going on in this warfare. You go out there to do that, Satan, who has these people and doesn't want them to go back, will fight you. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, though. We're back at Ephesians 2, and I want to see how Paul unfolds the gospel of peace for us here. It's very beautiful. Let's read it together. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off there in Minneapolis, talking about Gentiles, have been brought near. Don't ever think, brothers and sisters, that anybody's too far off. Don't ever look at us, a horrible sinner who does things that you wouldn't dare to speak and say, it's too late for them. Don't ever say anybody's too far off. Verse 14, For He is our peace, who has made us both, that's Jew and Gentile in this case, one, and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now go to verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. That's Gentiles. That's us way over here, 10,000 miles away from the promised land. And peace. To those who were near, that's the Jews, close in, sons and daughters of Abraham by the flesh. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's a rich unfolding of the gospel of peace. You don't need any more text to lay down the Bible on a lunch table and let somebody listen to you tell about peace with God. What it says is that there are two kinds of enmity that God has overcome. He took the initiative to do it. The first enmity is between a holy, unimpeachable, righteous God who dare not look upon sin without wrath and a sinner like me. And a chasm between, let's turn them sideways here and you all remember the little drawings, a massive chasm of animosity Sinful rebellion here, holy wrath here, and no possibility of peace. That's our dilemma. And the text says that by the blood of His Son and by His cross, He spanned the chasm and He made peace. He overcame enmity and He is now drawing across the bridge of the cross Repentant sinners into fellowship and reconciliation. There isn't anything sweeter this morning than to be at peace with God. Are you at peace with God? How's your conscience this morning with God? Do you, as you think about the possibility of dying this afternoon, do you think... Imminent death would strike fear into your conscience because there isn't peace with God. If you feel like that, well, before this service is over, on the basis of what I read here in Ephesians 2, you can 
accept the amnesty terms, which are believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, bank on Jesus. All the sins that you've committed every day of your life can be covered by the blood of Jesus as you rest in Him. And then there's reconciliation and peace with God. We've heard it by grace. We've believed it by grace. We are saved through it by grace. And now we're told in Ephesians 6.15 that this readiness of the gospel of peace is to be put on like shoes as part of our spiritual armor. Having shod your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. So let's think for a few minutes now about the readiness of the gospel of peace. It's part of an armor, it says. What's this armor for? It's for fighting. And who are we fighting? Let's go back and remind ourselves. Let's read verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, let me make four observations about those two verses. Number one, from the cradle to the grave, life is war. See that? From the cradle to the grave, life is war. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ, but Satan hates that peace. He will do anything he can to destroy that peace and attack it and undo it if he can. And therefore, while we live, our peace with God must be a vigilant peace. Observation number two, the war that we are in, in our soul, in our mind, in our body, in our family, in our career, all these fields of conflict, the war that we are in is not a war against flesh and blood, but against Supernatural, demonic forces. Now, what amazes me about that is not what Paul affirms, but what he denies. I don't know if it hits you this way. He affirms something that I believe and see all over the place in the Bible. Namely, that when a Christian hits the real world, he is in a supernatural warfare. His spirit and the Holy Spirit engage in conflict with the spirit of this age and with Satan and Satan's forces. No problem to me. I'm not a 20th century empiricist who thinks that the only thing real is what you can taste and see and touch. I'm just a wide open biblical person who thinks that if if the Bible says there are demons, there are demons. And we better watch out. Now, no, So that doesn't amaze me. What amazes me is what he denies when he says, we don't fight against flesh and blood. I just want to scream. 
If Paul were here, I would scream. I would say, Paul! I'd say it like that. What do you mean? You've been stoned. You've been beaten. You've been imprisoned. You've been kicked out of town. You've been shipwrecked. Your flesh has been torn. Your blood has been spilt. Other people's flesh cuts your flesh. Other people's blood boils against you. Their hands hit you. Their rods beat you. Their chains hold you. Their prisons capture you. And they drive you out of town. What in the world do you mean you don't fight against flesh and blood? Flesh and blood has tormented you, has hindered you in the gospel again and again and again and pressed your faith to the limit. That's what I'd say. Paul, we're here. Now, what do you think he would answer? We all write down our answers that Paul would give. I'll give you what I think he would say. I think he would say, settle down, settle down. You're right. You're right. Flesh and blood is real and can be very evil, very dangerous. But what I mean is, Whenever someone's flesh attacks me, or whenever someone's blood boils against me, whenever I feel rods or stones or cold water after a shipwreck or chains on my ankles or the stones of the stocks, something else is going on. Something bigger, something deeper. Something more dangerous and something more destructive is going on than what meets the physical eyes. There is behind every one of those flesh and blood attacks a spiritual conflict. And the reason I put it so strongly, John, is because if I don't engage the enemy at that level All my victories will be bogus victories. It'll be like knocking down decoys while the enemy's laughing in the field. You can get some victories over flesh and blood. You kill an enemy if he starts to kill you, kill him back. You get out of jail if you're clever enough, unlock the key. But what's accomplished? Paul would say. If the real big dangerous enemy is not engaged and defeated. What what have we done? Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. I want to show you a description from Paul of the relationship between the powers that he's talking about here and unbelievers, which we all once were. The RSV begins... And you he made alive when you were dead through trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now watch. Following, this is the way we all were. Following the course of this world or age. Following the prince of the power of the air. We were followers of Satan. Now, of course, Satan doesn't let you know that by and large. Because his hold would not be as strong, probably, if he did. We were followers of the prince of the power of the air. And then he describes it a little differently. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul would say to me, I think, okay, all right. 
Sons of disobedience can give me a real tough time. Sons of disobedience can beat me. They can stone me. They can imprison me. They can kick me out of town. They can ostracize me. They can criticize me. All right, all right. Sons of disobedience can do that. But look, what's at stake every time that happens is a spirit, which verse 2 says here, is in the sons of disobedience. You're dealing with followers of a prince of the power of the air. And if you engage the front without that massive power behind, you'll get nowhere in your life spiritually and have no significant victory. And therein lies the great folly of the modern age, the scientific age. I mean, it is going to be revealed someday, brothers and sisters, the most keen scientists, although some of them are often the most spiritually penetrating, but the ones who think they're the most keen, who think there's no place at all for any supernatural. This is a closed continuum of cause and effect. We are all just molecules and we will all disintegrate and go out of existence. That is going to be shown to be the most absolutely absurd and ridiculous folly that ever gripped the human race someday. Because the Bible opens up a world to us that if we don't take it into account, it is as though, Paul says, we're not even fighting. If all you see is what you see, you don't see, period. Now, I've made two points so far from verse 11 and 12. One is life is war. And two, the war is not with flesh and blood. Now, let me insert the word decisively. We do not decisively fight with flesh and blood, but decisively with spiritual forces. Now, here's my third observation from these two verses. There is danger in this conflict of falling, being defeated. Now, I'm not going to go into this in any detail because we've just spent several weeks in Hebrews about the need for perseverance and the danger of making shipwreck of faith, and we've talked about it much. I'm going to go straight to my fourth observation and show you God's solution to the danger of falling. And in this text, you could all tell me what it is. What does God provide us with so that we will not fall? Answer, armor. You remember that great text from Jude where it says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. If you stop Jude right there, say, Wait, Jude. How? How does God keep me from falling and making shipwreck of my faith? Jude would say, Read Ephesians 6. He would say, God has provided for you armor with which you can withstand the devil and having done all to stand at the end of the conflict. Be left in the field with everybody else on their face who's an enemy and you standing, bloody perhaps, battered, but standing. And he chalks it up to the armor. That's observation number four. 